the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Sarah News. Faith Talk 570 WTBN Pinellas Park and 910 WTWD Plant City. It's time for Verse by Verse. Sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. There's nothing quite as difficult to go through as broken fellowship, whether it's at a church level or whether it's with a spouse or whether it's with a a child or a parent or a relative or a friend. There is nothing quite so painful as not being close to someone you love dearly, someone you once were very close to. Nothing more emotionally painful than, than being estranged from someone like that. We all have someone in our past who has hurt us. We really don't care if we ever cross paths with them again. Most of the time, the hurt is still there every time we think about it because we have never tried to restore that broken relationship and deal with the problem that caused the break in the first place. That's the situation that makes this Bible study so important to us. Pain is a part of life. It happens to all of us. We just can't keep walking away from relationships because we don't want to face the emotional pain. Here on Verse by Verse, which is a ministry of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida, we've been in the book of 2 Corinthians. Here the Apostle Paul opens up about his feelings toward what has been going on in the Corinthian church. It has been so helpful to realize that everybody struggles with the heavy emotions that come about because of strained and broken relationships. Let's listen right now to today's message from Pastor Steve. Let's open our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 as we continue in our study about God who comforts the depressed. And I want to read to you the last few verses, beginning at verse 12 until the close of the chapter. Paul writes, So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if anything, I have boasted to him about you. I was not put to shame, but as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. His affection abounds all the more toward you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. Now, with these words, the Apostle Paul brings to a close his discussion on how God ministered to him and that God took him from his depressed state and brought him not just out of depression, but into joy. He began this discussion, this section of Scripture, by in verse 5 
telling us in this chapter that while he waited for Titus to come to him at Macedonia, he was, quite frankly, depressed. He had fears and conflicts and anxieties. And what were his anxieties about? What was his depression about? He was fearful that the Corinthians would reject him. He had sent Titus to Corinth to straighten out the situation, to minister there, and he was afraid Titus was going to come back and say, the Corinthians want nothing to do with you. They have cut themselves off from you. And so as Paul reflected on that, as he waited for Titus in Macedonia, he was depressed. Because understand, if Titus came back and said the Corinthians want nothing to do with you, essentially what he is uh, telling them is that they have cut themselves off from Christ. This wonderful church that you founded and that you love really doesn't want anything to do with Jesus Christ. Because if they cut you off, Paul, they cut off the apostles sent to them by Christ, and they essentially cut off God's revelation to them. So it's quite a serious situation that Paul found himself in, and his concern was that not only, uh, and it really wasn't so much a personal issue, but he had written a strong letter to them, a letter of rebuke, a letter of correction. We know it as 1 Corinthians, and he was very concerned that they would have said, that's it, we want nothing to do with Paul. And so as Paul reflects back as he's, as he's writing this letter and he reflects back on his state of mind while waiting for Titus in Macedonia, he admits that he was in a state of depression. Verse 6 says this, But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And I think this is the key phrase throughout this passage. Paul admits he was emotionally low, and that's what it means, depressed. He was down. He was low. But he recognized, and this is the great truth of this verse, he recognized that God was able to pick him up and bring him out of his depression. Why? Because he tells us God is the one who comforts, which means to strengthen and to encourage those who are depressed. Now, the question that we need to ask ourselves, and one that we have been asking as we've worked through this passage, is exactly how does God comfort those who are depressed? This is a very relevant question for Christians because not only do we get down like everyone else because we have fluctuating emotions like everyone else, but in addition, we experience something that non-Christians don't experience. We experience spiritual warfare. We know what it's like to encounter demonic opposition as we're serving the Lord and trying to live for him. And so in addition to just the normal uh, up and down that we go through just because we're human, we experience a side of being down that nobody else quite understands. And so how does God minister to us when we are emotionally down? That's what we want to say as we conclude this passage. And I must say this, something I have not brought out before. It's helpful to keep in mind that this passage doesn't address everything about being down. It's not an exhaustive passage. It deals only with depression that stems from having a severed relationship with others. A broken fellowship. That's what Paul is dealing with. He was down because of his broken relationship and fellowship with the Corinthians. So that's what we're dealing with here. You see, then it's, even though it's dealing with one issue and, and depression because of that, it is, as you well know, a major cause of depression. The heartache and the pain that comes with broken fellowship. There, there's nothing quite 
as difficult to go through as broken fellowship, whether it's at a church level or whether it's with a spouse or whether it's with a a child or a parent or a relative or a friend. There is nothing quite so painful as not being close to someone you love dearly, someone you once were very close to. Nothing more emotionally painful than than being estranged from someone like that. And that was really the cause of Paul's depression. But it is encouraging to note that Paul didn't stay depressed. He didn't stay down. God brought him out of depression by ministering to the apostle so that Paul could testify in this passage, not only was he comforted, which means not that God gave sympathy, but it means he strengthened him, he encouraged him, he stood with him. But Paul actually tells us that he that he rejoiced. He tells us, for example, in verse 13, for this reason, we've been comforted. God did comfort the depressed. And he tells us, he goes on in verse 13 to say, besides our comfort, we rejoice even much more for the joy of Titus. So Paul is rejoicing. He concludes everything in verse 16 by saying, I rejoiced that in everything I have confidence in you. So, so God brought him from being one depressed apostle to a man who is comforted, a man who is rejoicing, a man who has put himself on display as a living illustration of God's method of encouraging all believers, believers like us, believers down through the ages who are hurting and feeling down as a result of conflicts with others. God is is telling us and teaching us through this passage what his method is in bringing us out of depression. Now, we've already looked at two timeless truths that God uses to encourage the depressed We've looked at those two. We're going to look at the third and final principle or timeless truth this morning. How does God encourage depressed believers? Number one, he restores broken relationships. Verse 7 says, and not only speaking of the coming of Titus, not only of his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Paul is saying that while I was in Macedonia fearing the worst, Titus arrived and told me the best news. He told me that our relationship had been restored, that the Corinthians felt differently about Paul. They longed for him. They mourned for him. They mourned over the way they had treated Paul. And in addition to that, they had zeal for him. They wanted Paul back in their fellowship. They wanted to sit under his teaching, and this is what Titus has told him. God does restore broken relationships. You may be going through a very difficult time with someone you have loved dearly and you are estranged from them. I want you to know that not only does God restore broken relationships, but that it is God's will that relationships be restored, especially when there are believers. Now, sometimes it's not possible because Paul wrote in another place in Scripture, he said, be at peace with all men if possible, indicating sometimes it's not possible, but God does restore relationships, and there is no reason why two believers should have a break in fellowship. So, The first principle that God uses to encourage us when we're down is he restores those broken relationships. But how does he do that? It doesn't just come about because somebody wakes up one day and says, I I miss you. I'd like to get back in your good graces. It's far deeper than that. And that brings us to the second principle. Principle number two, he produces repentance in sorrowful Christians. Verses 8 through 11 speak about that. And and we don't have to read this. We've already gone over this. But I want you to make note of this. 
Mark this down that the only way broken fellowship is ever restored is by repentance. Time does not heal these wounds. Nobody just reforms themselves and turns over a new leaf and everything is fine. Now, it it doesn't happen that way. There must be repentance. And as we've defined repentance biblically, it is not simply a change of mind. It always involves a forsaking of sin. It is a change of mind. That's literally what the word means, but it's always used in scripture as more than a simple uh, mental changing. It's more than, than a passive mental agreement. Now I believe one way, I used to believe another way. It is always, it always involves grief over our sin, uh, hatred for our sin that leads us to forsake our sin. And that's what the Corinthians did. And that's why Paul, in this passage, verses 8 through 11, speaks about the sorrow that the Corinthians had. And he fa- in fact, he said, I'm glad that you're sorrowful. I wrote you and it produced sorrow. And Paul said he didn't really regret it. Why? Because sorrow for sin always precedes repentance. There must be a sorrow for sin. There has to be. That's that's what he said. Let me read this to you again in case you you were not here. And I want to make sure you understand this. Verse 8. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful, watch this, to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything. Paul said, I I am not saddened that I brought sadness to you. And the reason is because your sorrow for uh, your sin led you to repentance. And that was Paul's goal. That's why he wrote that letter. So that's important to understand that sorrow over sin leads to repentance. But that doesn't mean that everyone who says they're sorrowful or they're remorseful, has uh, been led to repentance. Because he says in verse 10, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God, that sorrow produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Christians who repent experience sorrow that leads them to repentance. But there's another type of sorrow. There is a worldly sorrow. There is a sorrow that non-Christians experience, as we've seen, that has no spiritual benefit, no spiritual benefit, no redemptive value. That's why it leads to death. That sorrow is a sorrow of it could be embarrassment, humiliation, um, sorrow for getting caught, sorrow for the consequences. That kind of sorrow is the sorrow that you hear when people say, well, sorry, there's no sorrow there. Or it could be a sorrow in the sense of I'm, I'm so sorry I hurt you. I'm so sorry that, uh, that this happened. But, but that is not the sorrow that Christians experience that leads to repentance. The sorrow that, that, that precedes repentance is always a grief over our sin, not because we've hurt somebody, although that may enter into it, but we know that we've grieved the heart of God. We see our sin and we understand that we have a loving father that we don't want to sin against and, and it bothers us and, and we hate our sin. And there's a paradox in the Christian life. We love our sin as well as hate our sin. 
no, no um, non-Christian has that paradox. They just love their sin. We love and hate it at the same time. And we hate it enough to turn from it as we turn to God. That is repentance. And this act of repentance we've seen initially takes place at our conversion. That is the gospel message. Repent and believe. It takes place at our conversion as we turn from our sin, we turn to the Savior for the forgiveness of our sins. But then as believers in Christ, you know what? Repentance becomes the norm. Repentance becomes a way of life as God makes us aware of our sins and we confess our sins. And that confession is with an attitude of repentance. Yes, we may fall into that sin again and again, but we we then confess it again and again and repent again and again. That's the that's part of the process of, of sanctification. Anyone who says, well, I'm a Christian, but they've never repented initially, and they don't repent in their life, and they can just continue in sin, and it really doesn't bother them that they're grieving the heart of God, that person is not a Christian, regardless of their profession. But the Corinthians were Christians, and for the most part they were, and they did repent. As a church body, they were convicted of their sinful treatment of Paul and their disregard for his letter to them. And so with with mournful hearts, they conveyed to Titus how sorrowful they were for their sinful attitudes towards the apostle, how they wanted to have full restoration of fellowship with them. And when Paul heard this, he was he was thrilled. But listen, Paul wasn't thrilled simply because Titus told him the Corinthians felt bad about their sin. And this is very important. Anybody can apologize. Anybody can tell you they're sorry for what they've done. Anybody can do that. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they are repentant. How would you know if they're really repentant? Well, the Bible speaks about the fruits of repentance. There must be a demonstration and an evidence that there has been true internal repentance. It has to show up on the outside in terms of behavior as well as attitudes. And that's what verse 11 is about. The Corinthians had this. Notice verse 11. This is why Paul was thrilled. Because he saw, based on what Titus was telling them, uh, uh, telling him about their new attitudes, that uh, they had really repented. For behold, what earnestness this very thing. Meaning, they were eager. Paul, they're eager to get with you. They can't wait to get this straightened out. This godly sorrow has produced in you what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong and everything, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Their new attitudes demonstrated that they couldn't wait to get this resolved. That's the mark of repentance, that they hated their own sin. They, they were indignant. Indignant at what? Indignant at their own sin. They had a holy anger towards, their, towards themselves and their sinfulness. They had a fear, a fear of God who could chastise them for their sin. I mean, all of that. When somebody repents, you don't have to push them to get things right. I have to tell you that. You don't have to try to convince them to have restoration. They can't wait to do that. Whatever it takes is their attitude. Uh, You don't have to push them. You don't have to encourage them. You don't have to say, now, you know you have to do this, painful as it might be. When God works in their hearts, there is an eagerness. Like Paul said, what earnestness you have towards us. They are zealous and eager, and they'll do whatever it takes to get things straightened out. So we need to be very careful. We need to be sure that we're not naive about this and gullible when people say they repent. We want to make sure that they have proven 
their repentance by the fruits of repentance. In fact, that's why, as we saw the other week, John the Baptist told the hypocritical Pharisees and Sadducees who came to be baptized as a demonstration of their repentance. John said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't tell, don't come to these waters saying that you've repented. I want to see some fruit if you've really repented. Then remember Paul told King Agrippa about his gospel message. He said, what I tell people is they should repent and turn to God. And watch this, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. So there always needs to be the outward demonstration of changed behavior and changed attitudes. That's why Paul was encouraged. Now, before we leave this, I want to just mention something and bring out something we have not said before. In Luke chapter 15, you don't need to turn there, but in Luke chapter 15, just something else that adds to this whole issue of repentance. Ordinarily, we think about repentance simply on, on how it restores our fellowship. It's, and that is the passage here. It's broken fellowship. We want there to be repentance. We want restored, renewed fellowship. But how does God feel about us when we repent? Jesus said in Luke 15, he said, there is joy in heaven in the presence of God when one sinner repents. That's Luke 15, verses 7 and then 10. So two times Jesus said that. Do you realize that when a sinner repents, and he's talking there, I believe, initially at salvation, there is actually joy in heaven. Imagine that. We can bring joy to the heart of God. God is thrilled when someone is saved. But I think it's it would be fair and reasonable to say that God is also thrilled when when Christians repent and get renewed fellowship. So it's not simply about us. Repentance also brings joy to the heart of God. Now, this brings us to our study. So far, Paul has revealed two principles, timeless truths about how God encourages believers who are depressed. He restores broken relationships, one. Number two, he produces repentance in sorrowful Christians. And the third principle that God uses to encourage depressed believers is this. He gives us a heart for the welfare of others before ourselves. He gives us a heart for the welfare of others before ourselves. That is to say that we have a love, a genuine love, to think about other people before thinking about ourselves. Let's begin to see this in verse 12. And I, and I want you to know before we go through this, this is worded in an awkward way. This is not the easiest, most, uh, uh, well, I should say easiest flowing uh, verses that you will ever read, but we'll try to explain it so that it's very understandable. It's not hard to grasp, it just is communicated in an awkward manner. Verse 12 says, So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. Now, right off the bat, we notice Paul returns to the subject of his first letter. That's why he says, so although I wrote to you, he's referring to 1 Corinthians, and he tells them his purpose for writing 1 Corinthians, but he does it in such a way that you read it, and at first glance, it seems odd, it even seems confusing, and I'll try to take the confusion out. Notice how he begins verse 12. So although I wrote to you, which is 1 Corinthians, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended. Now, what does he mean by these words? And who, who is the offender? Who is the one offended? I have to tell you that if you read commentaries on this, there are all kinds of speculations about who this might be, who would be the person at Corinth who was guilty of offending someone and who might be the person who was offended 
by the offender. Well, some think, and this is a very popular view, that, the, and this is one, one view, I should say, some think the offender was a false teacher, sort of the ringleader against Paul, that that was the man who was the offender. And then they would also say, those who hold to this, the one offended would be the Apostle Paul himself. Now, that is an interpretation. It's not one that, that I think holds a lot of weight, because I think it's uh, based on a lot of speculation. Certainly there were false teachers there, but that's not speculation. But I think this is speculative. The most natural, the most normal interpretation is to see the offender as as uh, the man Paul wrote about in his first letter. And after all, that's what he's referring to in his first letter in chapter five, who was having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. That, to me, would be the natural, most normal interpretation that this man who was having an incestuous relationship with his stepmother would be the, the offender, who might then be the one offended. I think his father would be the one who was offended, the man who was married to this unfaithful woman and this rotten son who was doing this. It's always amazing to me what kinds of messes we can get ourselves into. One sin hides another. One action leads to a reaction, and then to an attitude. Before long, that attitude develops bitterness and hardness and even hatred. God has a better way. He wants to heal the mess that we have created. But we have to do things His way. Don't let that bad attitude develop and fester. Don't ever decide that it is better to hate than to heal. I hope you are being blessed by this study in 2 Corinthians. Why not let us know what these messages mean to you? You can contact us at 727-239-0306 or through our website, versebyverseradio.org. We have a lot of resources that are designed to help you grow closer to the Lord. Once again, we really appreciate you listening to the broadcast today. We look forward to being with you again next time on Verse by Verse. Deepening your faith. The Lord came called from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't hurt him in any way. But now I know. Question. In your defining moment, does God know? Faith Talk 570 and 910 WTBA. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.